Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is, a, our, I guess, our official Christmas episode. Green Knight being our f- in December initiation, but... Yeah, yeah, we follow, we like to follow a one for us, one for them type rule. So Green Knight was, I mean, in theory for us, but I'd really love if that was for you as well, everyone <laughs> out there. <laughs> but this one's definitely for you. We're, uh, we're talking Home Alone. And to kick it off, the one thing I want to ask you, Taylor, is when you were eight or nine or ten, anywhere in that age range, did you ever wish your family would disappear? I made my family disappear. I think there's definitely some envy going on when watching this film at a young age. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely that, like, oh, wow, I can't believe this kid is talking to his parents like that. But also, like, <laughs> I wish that I had the house to myself in theory for large chunks of my childhood. How about well, yourself? Well, I mean, I definitely wish I had that house at any point in my life. That place, that's a gorgeous house. Um, Too much green and red know. for me. I think a bit generous to say upper middle class Chicago suburbanite, but maybe in the 90s that was considered upper, upper middle class. Yeah, pretty decadent upper middle class, but yeah, it, yeah. it's, a, it's but, uh, quite a house. It's a, it's a yeah, fantastic yeah. movie house. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it, yeah, it's perfect for it. And yeah, I would say, so I've got five siblings. Uh, you know, I shared a room until I <laughs> went to university. So while I can definitely, like looking back, it's easy to think that I would have thought those things, but like even... I've got some nephews and nieces now. Hanging out with one another is their top priority around the holidays and things like that. And I think if I was eight, too, I really loved having my family around. It was really when I got a bit older where I would have wanted more of my own space. And I, yeah, do I think, think at that's age kind of, eight, that's a little premature to have those kinds of thoughts. But you know, and, yeah, and I, I get it. Yeah. That's why I think that's kind of a core to this movie's appeal. It's that Pixar thing where it works for kids, it works for adults. But what they're doing here is they're taking the adult sentiment of you have to see your extended family or your or even your close family at Christmas and maybe you don't want to. Here's not wanting to and here's sort of getting, you know, getting what you wished for, but through the eyes of a kid. I think it it's an adult sentiment played through one of the most charismatic child actors who ever lived. Well, I, and yeah, we can. We're going to be talking a lot about Macaulay Culkin, but I, I specifically mm. remember going off that point uh, in the commentary or in one of the behind-the-scenes featurettes that I watched. I think it was mm. one of the producers who said this is equally an adult sentiment or the sentiment of parents as it is uh, the sentiment of the kids involved in the story. Mm. It's like kind of the fantasy. Oh, don't you wish you could just lose your kid for a couple of days? Yeah, and uh, and he was pretty shameless about it in the behind-the-scenes thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, John Hughes, I guess some point like the the genesis of this idea was what was the scariest thing to him um and it would have been right. forgetting a kid at home and he thought that that also would carry over to the kid's perspective what's the scariest thing about being a kid you're stuck home alone and there are burglars there's someone trying to get into your house well i think that's exa- right? that's actually what uh, director christopher columbus said was his greatest fear as a kid it was either him oh, or john maybe, hughes maybe yeah maybe i conflated it with with john hughes because they're both i mean they're John Hughes has a has a heavy hand on this, but also it was Columbus who directed it. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't know, this movie was directed by Christopher Columbus, who went on to direct a ton of huge movies, like Home Alone 2 right after this, but then Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, Harry Potter, the first film, uh, The Philosopher's Stone, 
Um, yeah. he did. Then, he did a lot of the heavy lifting for the entire Harry Potter franchise by casting something like ninety five percent of the kids he cast. Yeah, kept their roles until the end of the the eight movies later because the, the seventh one was two of them. That's a crazy success rate. Yeah, considering what we've seen with franchises since Harry Potter, that the fact that Christopher Columbus had any part of the beginning of that franchise is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's also a testament to how he's worked with children over the course of these, just the films I mentioned right there from Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone to the kids in Mrs. Doubtfire to the entire mm-hmm. cast of Harry Potter, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, this guy clearly has a knack for directing kids and uh, these wonderful kid stories. Uh, and that makes him a wonderful pairing with uh, John Hughes. And I mean, as we've talked about before, it's not easy to work with kids. It's never... I would say a director's first choice. There's that no. you've said before on this, the the whole saying is don't work with kids or animals. Yeah. Right? If you can help yeah. it. So Columbus, I would say, is almost certainly you'd consider him an expert for this kind of thing, the kind of work that he's done in casting the right kids, finding them, and knowing how to work with them. And you were telling me right before we started recording, they did some fun stuff with uh, Macaulay uh, behind the scenes on this set. Yeah, you know, that's worth just diving into because I'm, I'm fresh <laughs> off this. I watched it this morning. It's called on, it's on this amazing version of the DVD called the Family Fun Edition. And mm-hmm. it's uh, got some behind the scenes. It's got a featurette called uh, Max Cam uh, behind the scenes with Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> and so on the set of this movie, they actually handed Macaulay Culkin a video camera, you know, just a, a like a pretty good one, but a, a basic enough that he was able to figure it out and they just let him roam around set with his video camera. So there's this amazing footage of an eight-year-old Macaulay Culkin's perspective of a film set. And he's interviewing fellow cast members, like all the kids who you barely get any time with in the movie. He's interviewing them, talking to them, and they're all making jokes. They're all talking back at him like he's the big deal yeah. that he is. Mm-hmm. So uh, Yeah, no. I Go ahead. I think it's it's a it's such a great idea. I gotta I gotta borrow this from you. I wanted to check that out because it would be fun. As as I had mentioned, this kid is extremely charismatic. He works so well on camera. He for an eight year old, he so clearly understands what he's doing and what to put forward and what sort of energy to give. And like some of the scenes where he's sillier, he's doing a sing along impression or where he has to act very adult or or do a silly face or do a do his his you know trademark scream at the time um it's a it's a really singular thing for a kid of that age and uh with that uh maybe we should actually dive into the synopsis in case you're someone who has never seen home alone yeah i i i want to thank the one person in the world who hasn't seen home alone for tuning in to the podcast we really appreciate <laughs> it this is for you uh so home alone uh the synopsis uh when eight-year-old kevin McAllister is forgotten at home by his vacationing family at Christmas, he must defend it against a pair of persistent burglars. Uh, the movie stars Macaulay Culkin, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Pesci, and Daniel Stern, and was directed by Chris Columbus, and first hit theaters November 16, 1990. Uh, it's available to stream on Disney+, Plus, and just a tiny diversion, I would like to say um, I'm extremely unhappy with how SEO works for Home Alone right now, so that's search engine optimization sort of determines what comes up when you search something on Google, but it's the same on the Disney Plus platform. You can search for Home Alone, and Google's snippet preview and also Disney Plus prioritizes the current, like, remake reboot that they just put out this year. the 2021 version? Yeah. 
Yeah, that one comes up. If you search Home Alone on Google, that one comes up as the snippet preview with sort of the the image and and all and the little synopsis and the budget info and the stars. And same on Disney Plus. If you search Home Alone, the 2021 one, which we we will not discuss any more than this, comes up first. And it's a, it's a real bummer that they would they would try to push it that hard. I understand you got to make some business moves, but. Uh, this is a this is a stone cold classic, and it it's not getting the respect it deserves. Yeah, we're not even going to put the 2021 version in our show notes today. <laughs> no, and we haven't said the name yet, and we won't. No, nope, uh, don't say. So it. moving on, check out Home Alone <laughs> on Disney Plus. It's slightly more difficult to find uh, than you uh, than it should be, but uh, you can find it there and watch it if you don't have an old sort of plastic clamshell VHS or the Family Fun edition on DVD. And uh, uh, this what movie. Do you- what do you think of this tagline? A family comedy without the family. I think it's I think it's pretty good because I do think it touches on really like the core point of the movie. And it's way better than the other ones that IMDb lists. There's um, a couple really bad ones. One of them is just holy cow exclamation, yes, exclamation point, which I think cow, is, which is they're just the trying movie. to trade. They're just trying to trade on like the, I don't know, the Macaulay Culkin, you know, hands on his face look. I don't know if like. I guess that's what they think that look means. It's a real shame. And then there's a really overwritten one. Uh, when Kevin's family left for vacation, they forgot one minor detail, Kevin, but don't worry. He cooks, he cleans, he kicks some butt. That's a lot. That's a lot. I don't know if that's a tagline anymore. That's like, I don't know, a marketing brief, an abstract. He doesn't cook very much. He doesn't. He makes some macaroni and cheese, like some three cheese I mean, dinner, and then he doesn't impressive, eat it, but... which I always remember. He sits down to eat it, and then the, the, the bell chimes, and he, he doesn't get to eat his macaroni. I always yeah. thought it was a bit of a waste. Yeah, um, a waste, and you, you got to think he was hungry the whole final act. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, there's also Bring Home the Laughter this holiday season, which you could say about, I don't know, 60% of Christmas movies. So, no, I, I like uh, a family comedy without the family because I do think it points to the one of the reasons I really like this in, in examining it. I really like that this tagline sort of points towards one of the things I really like about this movie is that it's not about saving Christmas. It's not about getting the right present. It's not about what a lot of these things are about. Um, I think it actually it really sort of carries that Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life spirit forwards. It's specifically about the people. Involved. Yeah, the, the family. Um, I like. I really, I really enjoy some of these other movies. Like, um, what's the Schwarzenegger Turbo Man one? Oh yeah, the whole yeah. movie. Um, the whole movie the is about Jingle All the Way. It's the whole movie is about just finding the right toy. Uh, it's a, it's a little disappointingly materialistic, but I like that this movie is really a family movie and and about the presence and the value of your family and recognizing what they what they are even when they're in your face or they're causing you problems or they ate all the cheese pizza while at the same time being a home defense movie where you get to see two grown men just get absolutely destroyed by an eight-year-old uh, yep. through a series of booby traps. It's a nice sort of column A, column B movie, you know? Well, that's actually kind of what they said in one of the behind the scenes things too. It was just, you know, you had all these elements that were going to work. It's a Christmas mm-hmm. movie. You have all these familial elements and then you still have the slapstick comedy scenes with action involved mm. with these two older men. Uh, yeah. And I don't know, so much of this is enticing to the kids, but I think adults get a tremendous kick out of watching this with their kids too. 
and that's the thing, right? Like, I think this is an iconic movie in terms of the home defense, self-defense aspect, because you do see it brought up in conversation, like things like the third act of Skyfall, right? Where right, they're, they're protecting right. the manor. People refer to that as the Home Alone <laughs> sequence or, you know, the second and third act of Green Room or like, I don't, I don't know what was the, if anything really solidified this sub, sub, sub genre like this movie, right? I'm trying to think of earlier movies like maybe Straw Dogs is a, is a real sort of left field idea about some form of a home defense, but that's a real stretch. This one solidified this idea to the point that it's used as shorthand, right? It's the, the Kleenex for facial tissues, the Band-Aids for, for adhesive bandages mm-hmm. of uh, home defense movies. Which is um, just interesting because it, like a lot of the best movies, especially best 80s and 90s movies, it was, it was kind of lightning in a bottle in many ways. Yeah. All these elements came together at the right time and place. And you end up with this magical production that no one saw coming, not even the people yeah. involved in making it. Mm-hmm. And it paid off. This movie had a projected $18 million budget. Uh, it made just under $480 million worldwide. It was number one that was just for box 12 office. weeks. Just box yeah. office. Just box office. Like, yeah, the VHS, like the streaming rights, this movie continues to make money without a doubt. It's watched every year. Like, this is... I mean, in my family, there's always sort of like some debate over around actual Christmas. Are we going to watch It's a Wonderful Life or White Christmas or these other things? But there are the True Blue. They're going to be on every time. It's Home Alone, uh, Elf, a couple other movies like that. Yeah, um, Home Alone, Elf, Christmas Vacation. Mm-hmm. Probably the three that I expect to watch every year almost. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, this movie came out mid-November. It was number one for... 12 weeks think, at the box yeah, office it was some ridiculous which means number yeah through the new year people were still seeing it whereas i really feel like i kind of once christmas is over i try to get out of the christmas spirit it feels like a nice sort of little little thing but i wonder how many people would have this. i wonder how many repeat viewings people must have gone back for because this is kind of one of those mm-hmm. movies you see it once and you kind of go i gotta see that again that was so much yeah. fun it's not I one of those see, heavy movies yeah. that you can't exactly watch twice mm-hmm. in a week yeah, I want to see Pesci and Stern get hit in the head again with paint, uh, paint cans. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't even know where you want to begin with first impressions, things like that. I don't remember the first time I saw this. I just know I watched it every year of my life, probably maybe one or two off, and on an, in an odd season. But yeah, I this has been part of my family's ritual around Christmas time every year since I can remember. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically, I remember my mom always making sure that my sister and I knew that if these acts of violence were actually carried out against real people, they would be dead. Uh, and uh, that was <laughs> that was you know beaten into me. But uh, yeah, other than that, <laughs> I guess it's always been synonymous with family time, but also kind of a bit of deviance and mischievousness. So it always will be a fund movie that's nostalgic, but also I mm-hmm. think this is a movie that's going to keep giving and giving for mm-hmm. a long time. I, I don't see this movie becoming irrelevant. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think one of the nice things about looking into movies like this on this podcast and really taking a more analytical look at them and researching their background is you find these other things, especially for a long-standing iconic movie like this. It's not just the comedy in... Pesci and Stern uh, taking that much damage. 
it's not just sort of the core heart around Catherine O'Hara or or the old man who lives down the street. This movie is extremely well made. Yes. Like yeah. looking the First scene that we're going to talk well about the the number of different types of shots on display in the scene we're going to talk about, the way that they're used, the um uniformity of direction there's always a steady hand on the wheel that you feel you're always sort of kept in kevin's perspective this movie is extremely well constructed and produced it's a very strong script you got john williams doing all the music like, i was gonna say that too that's a big be, part of it yeah the reason this is going to be watched for for decades it's it's an all-timer yeah it will be like you know I don't know if it was ever expected to kind of just be for one generation. I think that the whole point of making this film the way it is, is to be more timeless and to be mm. something that doesn't need to be. Uh, well, they did make the joke. Macaulay Culkin and Christopher Columbus are in the commentary and they did make the joke right away. Like the movie would have been over once they got in the van and everyone checked their cell phones. <laughs> but, uh, uh, to yeah. go, but uh, I found even like when I think about this movie over the past five, 10 years, when cell phones have been a part of most people's lives, I don't think about this movie as like, oh, but if they had a cell phone, everything would be solved. It's not like how mm-hmm. I think this movie just exists uh, without that context to me. I don't know. Does that apply for yeah. you too? Uh, I, I suppose so. But I do also think in watching this, they lay so much track in that first scene to make it clear that it's, within the context of the movie, reasonable that Kevin would be forgotten, right? There's right. the, the plane ticket is in the garbage. He's up in like the fourth story, like the attic of that building. He happens to sleep in, which is the thing I don't buy. Eight-year-olds don't sleep in. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, th- that's, I'd say, the, the biggest stretch. And then like there's that nosy neighbor outside who gets counted, the kid yeah. with the best Chicago accent in the entire movie. Who Talking apparently, about gas mileage and <laughs> and and does this have four wheel drive and all this stuff? He's so funny and and I think they they really put the work in to make it understandable. So I don't know if Kevin was an eight year old who had a cell phone and his parents when they touched down could check in with him. Sure, I guess, but like you know, everyone else in the street is on vacation. I'd say the depending on who you are and how you feel about the police in general, maybe the bigger hole is how, how bad they make the Chicago police department look in this movie. Yeah. That's part of it. They're, they're highly incompetent, both in terms of like the administrative side, which we're going to talk, I think you're going to talk about later when Catherine O'Hara gets in touch with them and how easily the cops are like, there's nobody here. And they just sort of, they leave and, uh, and, and even, you know, Pesci easily impersonates one of them. As a as a, a a burglar who wants everyone to see his face, I found a little a little odd, but yeah. Upon rewatch, I do want to just mention that scene. It's not going to be my shout out scene, but that whole opening family house drama where you know, like the pizza mm-hmm. man's there, the co- uh, Joe Pesci's impersonating the police mm-hmm. officer. Um, the all like the entire cast of the family seems to be on set that day. What mm-hmm. a chaotic, crazy scene yeah. that just flows so well and seamlessly. Yeah. I just can't get over mm-hmm. how many people are in these scenes and how well the I movie always, flows. I always forget how many kids there are. There's because, so like, many. You're watching as they're they're all going through, and Pesci's asking like, "Do you live here? Do your parents live here?" Etc. He's trying to get info, and there's always like two or three kids where I'm like, "Oh, it's not like." The older brunette who does the Les Incompetents joke mm-hmm. to Kevin. There's another cousin, and there's another like it's not just Fuller and Buzz. 
there's like six kids whose like faces disappear from my mind in between watching because like they don't have to be big characters you just have to know that there's so many people in this house that you could lose track of kevin but also kevin can sort of ruins their night in, yeah in one sort of yeah. fell swoop right interesting um, you get that great great perspective shot where kevin's looking at all of them when they're looking at him yeah um and they're like wiping up his mess yeah yeah just a shout out to our Cretia episode, episode three. We talk more about ensemble shooting and things like that uh, and what the director did there. So definitely go check that one out. It needs some love. Yeah. We also talked a lot <laughs> about how to shoot a family in a kitchen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough. Very so. different movies otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Don't go into Cretia thinking you're watching the next Home Alone. Yeah. I wouldn't watch Cretia at Christmas. Maybe January. You know, it's a little bleaker. It's a Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> It is. It is. This is true. Anyway, sorry. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, interestingly, the the family was supposed to be featured in the movie a lot more, but they decided that the audience just wanted to get back to Kevin. So they had a lot more mm-hmm. shots of the family scenes in Paris uh, where they were kind of mm-hmm. like, there's more mingling between family members, more stress yep. about Kevin and all that stuff. But they yep. cut all that just because they realized how much the audience wanted to be back with Macaulay Culkin at the house. Yeah. Kind of planning for, yeah, the, I think like they, the they have burglars. the really that. Yeah. They have like the necessary scenes where like O'Hare is in the airports and she's, it's it shows how committed she is to getting back, even though it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fruitless. Um, in the end, the whole family mm-hmm. gets back at the same time. Uh, and then, yeah, they just have, I think that one scene in the Parisian hotel room where, I mean, shout out to our oceans 12 episode. They just have the Eiffel tower, like, you know, on like a matte painting or a projector in it, the background. Yeah, they said it was uh, it was on set, like it was uh, yeah. it was a painting or a projected thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as we talked about in in Ocean's Twelve, there are if you have to make it clear that people are in Paris, normally you show the Eiffel Tower. Uh, Soderbergh barely showed it in in Ocean's Twelve and uh, and thought it worked. I don't. It, it's it's far more subtle than this one. Yeah, you know, in in to Soderbergh's credit. <laughs> Not every apartment in Paris has a view of the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. And this one has a great view. It would yeah, have been an expensive one. But, you know, yeah. it's an uninterrupted <laughs> view of the yeah. Eiffel Tower. But uh, with that, I don't know if you have any other general notes, but we can hop into the scene if you like. Sure, let's do it. Um, so our scene for today, we this might not be the scene you thought we were going to pick, uh, mm-hmm. as I think is usually the case. But we chose a scene about... I guess it's before the midpoint of the film, before all the action really starts taking place. At uh, 3846 to 4444, which is a great time code. And in this scene, Kevin attempts to buy a toothbrush from a department store, but before he can pay at the counter, Old Man Marley, the local legend who Buzz warns him about earlier in the film, enters. Uh, Stricken by fear, Kevin runs out of the store with the toothbrush uh, and does not pay. He evades a police officer on a public ice rink and then has a run-in with the wet bandits themselves, Marvin Harry, who almost hit him with their car as they pull out of a driveway. They follow him up the road because Harry doesn't like the way that Kevin looked at him. I don't like the way that kid looked at me. Did you see that? And uh, they end up losing him at a church. And end scene. The scene stars Macaulay Culkin as Kevin, Joe Pesci as Harry, Daniel Stern as Marv, and Roberts Blossom as Old Man Marley. A great name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this, I mean, we picked the scene because there is a lot in it. We get to talk a lot. I mean, considered maybe a full sequence, right? It's it's a bit on the long side, I'd say, for, for our scenes in general. But there's so much to talk about here and how it's made, uh, how Kevin is characterized, 
And, uh, you know, I think it's a little bit more interesting than just, you know, trying to look in on one of the home defense sequences, right? Yeah, there's um, a lot more to this lot... scene than you think initially. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like how this scene is filmed. Uh, but to, to kick it off, I just want to say, like, one of the ongoing things with Kevin is they sort of show how mature he is for his age. And it's, I think, played for, for jokes a little bit for the adults. And you have that sort of in the last scene where they're all like, how'd you survive? And he's like, I went and I picked a fabric softener and eggs and milk. And they're all kind of bemused by that. But Kevin opens this scene by asking one of the most adult questions. And I can say I personally have never in my three decades. Is this toothbrush approved by the American Dental Association? Yeah. Double checked whether a toothbrush is approved by the ADA. Um, the American Dental I, I, Association. Yeah, I would. It would never have occurred me to even check. And if I was eight and I was home alone, I'm not brushing my teeth. I got. I got to be honest with you guys. There's no way. Like Kevin does a lot of childish stuff, right? He eats garbage and he watches garbage and all that. But he's still taking care of his teeth, which is distinctly adult and uh, and very mature of him even knowing when to go out and get a new toothbrush i i can't believe that an eight-year-old i, I haven't have figured that the out ability yet. yeah and it, it takes a while for me to realize that the <laughs> toothbrush that i have is just an absolute mess and there's no way it's actually doing its job and then i realize i have to go get a new one and start hurting my gums again yeah but, uh, but uh, Kevin <laughs> doesn't mess around he wants an american dental association approved toothbrush and the two cashiers have this ridiculously long argument that luckily fades out because you just kind of lose track of what they're saying once Kevin sees the old man enter. And so earlier, I, mean, I, in- I, I feel for for the old couple running this shop. I if it doesn't say on the package, I wouldn't know if it was ADA approved. And yeah. who's this who's this kid coming in here and causing trouble, right? Uh, Christopher Columbus in the commentary was like, I love this guy's delivery. He didn't have any lines for him, so this is all just him coming up with it on the spot. And all the guy really says is like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, right? Who No one's ever asked this question. And there's this unaccompanied minor coming in and, and pointing out that we may not be selling the right uh, toothbrushes in our little corner shop. It's interesting you that know, they had to have three characters kind of in this scene now that I think about it. They didn't. They really only need like one shopkeeper to be all of these things. You know, the person who's like, yep. I don't know if this is ADA approved. Chase him out the store. Yell to the cop. Hey, shoplifter. Mm-hmm. But this it, this takes three people. This takes the woman behind the counter, the man she calls over, Herb, and then also Herb. the yeah, the, yeah. the young <laughs> the young uh, stock boy, the grocery boy. Oh man, do I? That's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Hey. Is when they're like, what, what's his name, Ricky or something? They're like, I don't know. Jimmy, stop that boy. Yeah, and he's got like a hero shot. He's like reacts and then he he does like the 1950s like superhero running thing where he moves away from the direction he's moving in first and then runs out of shot. And every time I watch it, I'm like, I really want to see Ricky, this, the boy with the broom, chase Kevin the whole way. And he only chases him right out of the store. Then he... He spots a good old Chicago police officer and uh, and lets him take over. Who looked like he was on like a coffee break just to add more mm-hmm. criticism to the to the police force of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is like just quietly an anti-police movie, I think. Um, I but think... also like in that very calm 1990s way where it's like, well, everything's fine. Like, the, so the cops, you know, they like donuts. They're not very good at running. It's Chicago, you know, it's snowy, they, they'll have a tough time, but it's fine also because it's 
the height of prosperity, right? We're not New York. There's no crime. Well, I think it, like almost inherently in the John Hughes script, there is a subtle critique of adulthood. Uh, and mm-hmm. this comes from both how he writes his adult characters, but also how the kids view the adult characters. It's almost like in each of his films that I think of, it's kids viewing adults fail at being adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether this is people in authoritative positions like police officers or this is parents uh, failing to do mm-hmm. si- their simple job of bringing their kid with them on vacation, uh, mm-hmm. I, there's always this level of criticism in Hughes's f- scripts. And I think it really translates strongly into this movie because it's not overbearing and it's not mm-hmm. distracting to the film as a whole. And then you do yeah. have the one really solid adult character in the scary neighborly man who's in this scene, yeah. old man Marley uh, and Robert's well, blossoms yeah, I think, is able to yeah. really take this character to another level. We can talk about him mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just can say that I think you're, you're right about Hughes in sort of what he, what he validates in a child's perspective is you're not really allowed. There's no real discourse for kids to be like, I know my parent just messed up. They're never going to admit it to me, right? Because they can't, because they're supposed to be infallible. And these movies aren't, I don't think, overt in that. But when you're watching it as a kid, you do feel a little heard or a little understood. Yeah, that's a big part and, of why his movies are so successful yeah. to kids and young people. Yeah, yet just a, yeah, another reason why, why it's got the staying power it has. And then, yeah, you're right. So kevin is doing one of the most adult things i've ever seen a person do let alone an eight-year-old and it's immediately undercut by a very childish thing where this old man he's never met who he's only heard you know secondhand rumors sort of like urban legends about shows up from his older brother um yeah and i love like the way that they cut this i just you don't you don't see this as often i i hate to say that but you don't see it that often where you got like you said. There's what 31 setups in this scene. That's what uh, Christopher Columbus said, and I think he was just talking about the store slash maybe the exterior yeah. of the store scene where the mm-hmm. where the grocery boy like flags the cop mm-hmm. down. I think that like two minute scene right just there, which is a small part of what we're talking about today, is 31 setups and to, in one day. And to put it yeah. in perspective, they- most most days on the set like. On average, like you're, if you're talking just basic scenes, maybe like six to seven setups is is a lot. So yeah. thirty one. Yeah, no, it's. You're right. They they really they invested time and money in this scene that you maybe wouldn't have thought they they should. You're right. There are a bunch of people in the store who could be played by one person. There are thirty one setups to get this sequence, and I think it all pays off because it really puts you in Kevin's perspective. You have when when uh, old man Marley shows up, you've got. The insert shot of the bell, the insert shot of his boots, yeah. a, like a perspective tracking shot as he moves up to the counter, but on Kevin, very scary. The music changes. He slams his 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 bloody hand down on the counter, and you get through the counter a split diopter shot, which we've talked about in the past. But you know, you've got two, you got a, a foreground and a background in focus. Kevin's face and the and the bloody hand. And then he's there, and again, you're right. Like, what is that? Half a day to shoot those? Oh, that was the full. Things? That was a full day to shoot the. Oh, okay. to shoot the department so they, I store. mean, the inserts. The inserts would be would be relatively fast, but again, they but no, could have just shot each of those is a different. Like a setup for those of you who don't know is different literally any and, any yeah. different time, any time where the crew has to pick up and move the camera to a different set setup, literally, uh, where they have to mm-hmm. usually change the lighting, 
the angle, the lens, all those things, that's a different setup. So, and this mm -hmm. takes a long time. It may seem like, oh, you just pick up the camera and move it, but it literally involves changing almost everything about how you have mm -hmm. their setup if you're doing yeah. it in the traditional way of a movie. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these cameras are 30 years older than they are now, so they're heavier. They might be on stands, they might be on wheels, like the, the, the way that the housing of the lenses work. Everything has gotten more convenient as we go forward, but 31 setups in a day right now is still a lot. Yeah, on, right? on and back film, then, everything though, was it, just more cumbersome. On, on film, though, I can't imagine how much more that would add to your time. When you're shooting digitally, mm -hmm. that's it's different. And when most films today yeah. are shot digitally, but uh, mm -hmm. they were using old RE cameras. You can see it in the behind the scenes, and mm -hmm. uh, they're pretty impressive big rig cameras. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I heard from, I think it was Daniel Stern on set, that they were about 300 pounds, the units that held the cameras oh, and, the, and the cameras themselves. Yeah. 300 pounds. So yeah, you're moving those around, you're you're changing your lighting, and you're just getting the shot of the bell being hit when the door opens, then you're getting the shot of the boots on the floor, then you're getting the tracking shot up to Kevin. All of this, in theory, you could have just had, I would say, if you want it, like again, sort of the exercise before saying that all the shop people could be one person, all of this shot could just be a shot from like the shopkeeper's perspective at Kevin, yep. and you see Marley come in the background out of focus moving forwards. It would have roughly the same tone. It would not be nearly as good. No, right? the and it boot would take squeaking a third is of the time, impactful. But, like yeah. that shot where, mm -hmm. like, I still you can almost like replay the sound effect in your head. It's mm -hmm. like it, that embedded into my brain, like yeah. the sound of his boots squishing on the floor yeah. as they come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it all makes for a really, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, realistic reaction on Kevin's part. Yeah, and then I mean, you have like you've got that split diopter where Kevin realizes who's there. Then perspective from Kevin looking up at old man Marley, perspective at old man Marley looking down at Kevin, all these things get you right in their heads and establish why this kid who would have the f the presence of mind to ask about ADA approval on a potential toothbrush purchase would then back away with it in his hand and run out of the store. Yeah, literally like frozen with fear, not in any way malicious, stealing yeah, the toothbrush. No, no intention. This, this kid, he's still a kid. The point is that he can be scared. Um regardless of how intelligent he is or how responsible he is, um, the right motivation can can undercut all of that. So he backs his way out of the store. The shopkeeps are telling him, like, no, you got to pay for that guy, pay for that. He can't even hear them. He's so scared, and he takes off. And then, yeah, they send the, they send the shopkeep again. So many great shots in this, so much great attention to detail. The shot, the, the like, push in on that, on that boy where he gets his little hero moment, I love so much. And then, uh, and then, yeah, he chases him out the store, he flags down a cop, and then the cop uh, takes off after Kevin across an ice rink, and we get a lot more great moving perspective shots. Yeah, of Kevin, like, sliding through someone's legs, and in mm -hmm. the, even in the commentary, Macaulay and, uh, and uh, Christopher Columbus are just laughing at the whole scene, because they're like, and he's still sliding. <laughs> Yeah, like like Kevin, you know, he gets he gets a couple good pushes onto that rink, and then he goes the entire thing yeah. underneath everybody while this, uh, you know, a less than uh, dexterous cop can't really follow his path. Well, first of all, this is the first scene they shot in the entire film, other than the black and white film that is like the film within the film, uh, mm -hmm. Angels with Filthy Souls. But otherwise, this is the first principal shooting day with Macaulay Culkin, and... 
in the commentary, Columbus says we knew right away that we had something special with Macaulay Culkin mm-hmm. because I and I think he doesn't really get into too much detail in that moment in the commentary. But I think what he's referring to is how many uh, level changes have to occur in the scene for the character of Kevin. You know, he yeah. comes in with like this brimming confidence as like this adult eight year old. Mm-hmm. And then it's quickly stripped away, as you said, Tim, like when he's faced with fear. And then he has this moment of remorse when he's walking away after he's evaded the police officer on the ice rink. It's very sad, Zach. Yeah. When he's he's walking, when he realizes he's a criminal and he's so, he's so ashamed. It's got a real like um, Charlie Brown, Michael Sarah, Arrested Development uh, tone to it. Yeah. He's got like the drooped shoulders. And it's cart it's cartoonish. Yeah. And I mean, it works though. Cause he's, he's a kid. He would be, his emotions are that pure, right? Yes. And that's, that's exactly what I think stands out. It's not trying to be subtle the way that I think you could direct a kid in terms of like, mm-hmm. Oh, like you can kind of stiffen up a bit. No, they really let him as Macaulay Culkin worded himself, ham it up throughout the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he jokingly said, that's why they casted him. Yeah, because he's because yeah. he's a big ham, <laughs> and it works. He, he's a big ham in this movie, big time. Yeah, uh, but it and works then so I mean, well. you get the you get the nice transition to where he's he's like, oh, I'm a criminal. He's very ashamed, and then you cut to actual criminals, and uh, it's uh, Daniel Stern uh, plugging up the the drains in the sink of one of the houses on Kevin Street that they've been robbing. Yeah, and then uh, once he gets in the car, like I guess this is the first time we see them <laughs> a clogging the drains, and then b when he sticks the snow globe on on the dash with the gum yeah you get these little rituals and yeah. i like like the 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 conversation is about the one ritual but there's this other one that you only see uh, visually where yeah he's he's got yet he's got a snow globe from yet another house he takes his gum out and he sticks it to the to the dashboard and there's like nine other snow globes yeah and stuck there, just right? a really quick nonverbal moment. I mean, there is dialogue happening, but it's not about that action, like about the snow globes. Mm-hmm. And you get this context. Oh, they've already hit, you know, like whatever it is, nine houses. Mm-hmm. Cause you can see that he's taken a snow globe from each house. It's brilliant yeah. context that I don't know whether it was in John Hughes's script or this is just Christopher Columbus coming up with an action for the actor, Daniel Stern at the mo- in this moment, mm-hmm. but it's brilliantly conceived because that's so much added context without, adding very much detail or effort into your film it's character right like these two guys i don't i don't think they get a lot of time to build out who they are you don't you don't and i i wouldn't want it i wouldn't want them to give some backstory of the wet bandits or something you get all this throwaway stuff but every time they can they give you a little bit more info into their dynamic before they're sort of them versus kevin yeah their dynamic is important their uh their relationship mm -hmm. It's very, but it's very funny, sort of in the superior subordinate, but he, he comes in, like he gets in and he's smiling to himself and Pesci wants to know what he's smiling about. And then he realizes he did it again. Harry, it's our calling card. Calling card. All the great ones leave their mark. We're the wet bandits. You're sick. You know that? You're really sick. I'm not sick. Yes, you are. I'm not that's sick. That's a sick thing to do. A- Calls him sick. Mm-hmm. He explains his logic that it's their calling card, which again pays off at the end of the movie when you realize that when you leave a calling card, then they know exactly how many houses you burgled. Yes. Right? When yeah. it could have otherwise possibly been vague, even though, again, I would say they're pretty horrible burglars in that they're never wearing masks. Pesci shows up as a police officer uh, and lets everyone see his face. 
But another thing, uh, just to jump back to it about characterization, you mentioned your notes, and I didn't know if this was from the commentary or not, about their costume design being Dickensian. Yes. Which is something that had not occurred to me yet. I had to look this up because I was just hearing it audibly from Christopher Columbus, and I had to make sure, because he mentioned Dickensian, and then he mentioned Great yeah. Expectations, and I was like, oh, Charles Dickens, I get it. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dickensian is just simply referring to anything that could infer the world of Charles Dickens's literature. Yeah. There's something kind of like classist going on yes i'd say or or just the idea like they're not cat burglars and i think like there is a line where marv uh marv is just like dumping things yeah. into a sack and <laughs> and harry's like you're one of the great cat burglars of the world marv and it kind of gives you that idea where yeah they're wearing like you know sort of tattered clothes uh pesci has like fingerless little like wool gloves um stern they've got all these great um like uh, layering of different patterns and textures. Yeah. So I like Stern has like checkered pants or like, or like plaid pe- uh, pleated pants. And he's got like a paisley brown and gray shirt under a brown sweater, under a brown coat. It's all these brown and grays that are, are entirely divorced from, I'd say like the, the colors that the parents wear, which are more upper class and, you know, camel coats and, and Kevin's red sweaters and, uh, and scarf and thing like that. Well, just, Based on what the direct the director was saying, uh, the film was very focused from costume to set design uh, on making sure there was as much red and green in the film as possible. And we already mentioned it with the house. The house is almost yeah. all done entirely in reds and green patterning, which mm-hmm. somehow doesn't look as off as it should, I think. But yeah, there's so much red and green and Christmas and uh, Christmas tones and Christmas vibes and brightness. Then you see Harry and Marv, and they are dressed in the uh, dullest of colors possible, like Very grays, drab. blacks, browns, yeah. uh, beiges, and it it creates exactly the kind of contrast you want to visually conjure up when you're making a kids versus adults movie, or just even like mm-hmm. a good versus evil uh, yeah. storyline. This is it goes a long way to have them dress this way. If they were mm-hmm. both dressed up in bright red this movie w- works differently you're talking about kevin facing two santa yeah. clauses or something well and i think too just you know if they were wearing like winter coats that were fashionable or just like current at the time right like right. The stuff fashionable. That kevin's parents wear even it's not fashionable but if it's like that you know like polyester vinyl like gore-tec like you know where things started being um um if it was like those synthetic fabrics, things right? Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different look. It's a different feel. But they they completely disconnect this type of adult from the other type of adults that Kevin knows. And and again, so this scene, like after they sort of have their argument about being wet bandits and whether or not Marv is sick for for doing this, they're driving out into the street, and that's when they encounter Kevin. Yeah. Um, which again is a nice little bit of camera work in how they did this. I think they talked about it in my commentary. You had some notes. Yeah, uh, well, I, I did kind of figure this part out already, but they filmed the moment where Kevin is face-to-face with the van in reverse, uh, mm-hmm. have done this in a movie that I've made myself, and it's actually really hard to execute. And in the commentary, they actually said it took, they did it you know, countless times and only one take worked. It's approximately one and a half second long shot. And it's Kevin screaming and the van stopping right in front of him. And all you have to do to, mm-hmm. to do this seemingly simple shot kevin has to scream but like in reverse so you yeah. op- so you stop screaming you start at the screaming 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> See, it's even confusing yeah. to try and explain. <laughs> and to get like that impact of the brakes of the van breaking yeah like that that wobble yeah right? they had to have people physically shake the van to start the shot and then they yeah. hammered the reverse yeah yeah and i was thinking about this like even even doing this shot like this like you they had to still have a lot of safety in in place here i'd be so scared that you're just in the wrong gear yeah right? exactly they have to jump right on the accelerator yeah. to you better to hope you're not in, that they want you better hope you're not going forward with macaulay coke and the, I mean, six inches from the this, this yeah yeah this movie's over yeah. this is one of the first sequences they filmed yeah and yeah. uh it's so i would guess based on the facts we do have that this is the first time macaulay culkin would have met daniel stern and joe pesci mm-hmm. which Probably. is interesting I heard that Joe yep. Pesci intentionally would avoid Macaulay Culkin on set because he wanted him to think that he was mean and for real. I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. That they didn't. He didn't want a, a warm sort of presence between them. That you know, take with a grain of salt whether or not that really works or not. Who knows? Um, uh, at, you know, Joe Pesci is apparently a lot more method than most people like are willing to discuss. He was apparently a very serious, very intense person on set because he was like a perfectionist. Uh, yeah. Not to say that I've heard anything too negative about him on set, but just that he's mm. incredibly precise and wants it's the best a, from all yeah, the people around him. It's a particular energy. Yeah. It, particular yeah. energy for like a like a family comedy, that kind of thing. But honestly, like, a, you know, in terms of the product, I think it really works. I love... He's got a, he's got a good touch in this. I really love this interaction in terms of again, I think something from a child's perspective that you're used to seeing where you did something careless and the adults are angry at you for a second, but then the, you realize it's because like, well, they didn't want to hit a kid with a car and he's just kind of like so like they they kind of yell at him and like Daniel Stern's got the great line. Um, Sandy don't visit the funeral homes, little buddy. It's probably the probably the best line in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, Pesci kind of calms down. He's like, he's like, all right, all right, all right, Merry Christmas. And it is that very adult thing where, like, you see a kid almost get seriously hurt and you're angry at the kid. And then it kind of wears off. And I think it, I think it's something that plays well from the, the kid's perspective, too. It's like, I definitely seen that before where I, I ran out in the street or something, right? And your and parent, like, so grabs you and adult, is angry at you for that second. Yeah. Then they realize you almost died. An adult died. goes from scared to angry to relieved. And I like that little interaction. But, again, and then it... it Another thing pays off where you get the the gold tooth glint, which Kevin recognizes. The only person in that house who's really paying attention to this police officer at the beginning. Yes. Um, and spots a hot, an easily identified like you might as well have a face tattoo and be a burglar, and uh, and gives him a weird look, which is also I think very just very funny that like a seasoned Chicago criminal with Joe Pesci's face and and voice is like I don't like how that kid looked at me. We better follow him. Yeah. <laughs> and. The end of the scene is kind of weird. They follow him to a church, and then Kevin poses like within the uh, the nativity scene outside. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's so he grabs, weird. Like I'm a like, blanket. Where was that extra his, blanket? Yeah, well, I mean, he stole it from baby Jesus or something. Who knows? Right I love the idea that the criminals are like are like, oh, I'm not going to a church. We better just leave. Yeah, is right. it like some divine intervention was going to interfere? Yeah. And Kevin has this. I don't know how is it directed. It always makes me laugh. But the look on Kevin's face when he takes the robe yeah, off. It's like, so, so like pensive and serious. Right. <laughs> it's like you're watching like an Alan J. Pakula like thriller and Dustin Hoffman or Robert Redford just just got away by by putting on a disguise. So you get this great ADR line where he's like, when those guys come, I'll be ready. He'd obviously inferred a lot. And he sort of 
he he had the presence of mind to recognize Pesci, and he had already scared them off once by I think he turned on the lights in the house and he played some of the audio from uh, Angels with Filthy Souls. Another great Daniel Stern moment where like he runs away thinking he's being shot at in a Chicago uh, suburban neighborhood and. He, he thinks he recognizes uh, snakes, but he can't remember what from. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know no snakes. But that sort of caps off the scene. It gets Kevin to this space where he's very mature. He's very scared. He's very ashamed. And then he sort of gets a purpose, right? He knows that the wet bandits are going to come back and he's got to defend his home. Yeah. And what's what I found most interesting about the end of the scene is in the commentary, Columbus said that this is a line they were forced to ADR after test screenings. Uh, they, mm. they felt that it needed to be more obvious that Kevin was aware that they are coming back. So it's actually only like the past couple of viewings. Have I really paid attention to how badly 80 yard that line is? Cause it's almost sounding. Yeah, yeah. It almost sounds yeah. like a voice of God narration or something. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't fit with anything else in the movie. And that's why right there, because yeah. it was yeah, studio you almost, decision. You also, yeah, you almost are just hearing his internal monologue because it's yes. not him saying that to himself while he's running. Yeah, I do think though it's probably a good call on the studio's part. I, I don't hate it. There is there is a big logic jump for Kevin to just be like, I know these guys are coming back tonight, and I got to be ready for them. I, I just because I I ran into them and I recognize Pesci. I simply wish that it had been better ADR'd. You know, like something yeah. that they had done with him short of breath or anything that could have yeah. added to the realism of it that's mm-hmm. that's my only critique and one of my own very few yeah. critiques of this film as a whole this movie mm-hmm. works on all kinds of levels and like we've said so many times throughout this pods already today it, it will last it will be an enduring movie that mm-hmm. will continue to make other generations laugh and laugh and laugh yeah i do think yeah this movie is a great example i'm so glad that the audience voted for this one it was kind of up in the air with elf uh for a bit in our voting but I think this movie is a great example of the things that you're going to watch every year over and over and over. Maybe you've been watching them since you were a kid to the extent that you don't, you're not always paying attention, right? You're just sort of letting the story take you from time to time. When a scene starts, just check out how it's made. If this is a movie you've been watching for 20 years, there are probably some things you haven't noticed about how well it's made that have contributed to its staying power. And this is for me, it was a great exercise and sort of, paying attention to the 31 different setups in a two-minute sequence. Yeah. Right? And and how much craft is on display. Looking back at Home Alone is such a rewarding experience if you actually want to mm-hmm. zone in, but it's also a perfectly consumable movie if you just want to have it on TV and mm-hmm. chill with your fam. I think it's a great pick, and thank you to our audience for uh, making this the top pick because we really enjoyed discussing it. Yeah, this is lots of fun, and... Uh... And as always, though, there's so much in this movie. Like, we, we got a lot in this sequence, and that's why we picked it. But there's a lot that we couldn't talk about that we'd like to. Uh, so we're going to move into our shout-outs. I had had a bunch uh, listed that I wanted to do, and I had to narrow it down to one. So I'm shouting out John Candy. Right. Um, nice. He is such a great presence in this movie. And in the research, it was a lot of fun to find out that John Candy was available for only one day to film his scenes took him 23 hours to shoot them he was only paid a reported 414 dollars for the day uh he did it as a favor to hughes they had worked together on uncle buck and obviously there's a lot of sort of chicago second city television talent in this movie with him and Catherine o'hara which makes the scenes with them so much more fun especially when you find out that 
there's not a single of John Candy's lines in the original script. I had heard rumors a lot for a while that like the sequence where he talks about leaving his kid in the funeral home was improvised, specifically that. But anytime you see John Candy on screen in this, he was making up his lines. He was almost certainly just trying to make Catherine O'Hara laugh. Like the sequence where he tries to get her to recognize his polka band. Yeah. And he keeps naming their hits. He keeps naming like their sort of icon status as the polka kings of the Midwest and like polka, polka, polka. It was a pretty big hit. We sold like 400 CDs. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because she's so, her mind is in such a completely different place. I love his presence in this. Um, it's very welcome. Like it's, it's, I, I love the sequence with him and her where she had spent, I think so much time in these airports begging people in the bureaucracy of the airports for, for a favor, right? Like, please try to get me on a plane. Please try to find another option for me. My, my child is home and alone. She's so distraught. She's so desperate and not really getting anywhere. And then it's just a, a a kind passerby this guy who comes over and he says well we're driving that way anyway we'd love to take you oh jeez if you have to get to chicago we'll we'll gladly drive you it's on the way to milwaukee you'd give me a ride sure we will why not you know you gotta get home and see your kid a ride to chicago sure you know it's christmas time (laughs) it's a nice little christmas moment it's a nice sort of thing again about people being the point of this season and just one person's sort of kind favor can really make the difference. Catherine O'Hara, just to touch on her, she's the heart of this movie too. And her reaction when she realizes that this weird polka clarinet yeah, band leader is moment. offering her a ride. It's very touching. Um, and yeah, John Candy, he's just an absolute Canadian national treasure. And I love him in this movie. What's your shout out, Tay? Uh, well, I just wanted to add to that, that, uh, it's one of those like truly memorable Christmas moments from the film, like just like that act of kindness and generosity. So it always has stood out for mm-hmm. that reason. But the chemistry between the, the actors, O'Hara and uh, Candy, is pretty impressive too. Uh, yeah. And they started shooting this at 7 a.m. and they ended shooting this at 6 a.m. the following day. And so uh, just amazing that John Candy was even willing to step up to the plate and do this movie for such low pay uh, as a favor. And it makes this movie truly what it is. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It's such a it's such a great addition to the sort of non Kevin sequences that you wouldn't think too much about otherwise that just have to get O'Hara's journey across or lack of a journey. And, um, and for the most part, and but yeah. Columbus even said as well that without John Candy explaining his situation with his kid and kind of talking about all the bad parents in the polka band that mm-hmm. he felt audiences wouldn't connect or understand the fact that a family could leave their kid behind as well mm-hmm. as the movie would yeah. work without that scene. So it does add extra context and maybe a bit more believability to some of what has already happened mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, just to yeah. add that, but a great shout out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. I'm glad you got a bit of Catherine O'Hara in there too, because she is truly amazing in this film. But my shout out is a much smaller part uh, to uh, Larry Hankin, who's the actor who plays Officer Balzac. Uh, and yeah, he this, is. This was one of my potential shoutouts too. And I had it on the list. He is uh, child <laughs> services. <laughs> and so when have you ever seen someone enjoy a donut so much on on? Screen? Oh, he 
and they talked about how they had to edit around him eating the donut because the don't mm. the piece of donut falls on the phone, but then it falls off. The, so they had to make sure they cut back yeah. to show the donut fall off the phone, or mm. else yeah. like people were just going to assume it was a mistake in the editing because it was on the phone mm. one second and fell off. Yeah. Oh, so uh, Christopher Columbus had a bunch of nice things to say about this actor, but I think it's a, just a tremendous performance in a bit part uh, mm. by this actor Larry Hankin, um, and. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of undercutting authority figures in in a way in John Hughes films. Like the actor has so many like great one-liners. Like, has a child been involved in a violent altercation with drunken and or mentally ill member of his immediate family? No. Has he been involved in a household accident? I don't know. I don't. I I, I hope not. Has a child ingested any poison and or any other object that has become lodged in his throat? And he just sounds like he's reading verbatim off of like a little yeah. template, uh, which yeah. just adds to this this idea that there's a problem like inherently with the structure of adulthood and like the way that you have to do things in an organization versus just thinking practically. Well, and that, and, yeah, the idea that like you have such a relatively simple problem. There's a child at home alone. If I call the police... Surely someone can go over and visit. Yeah, and it's right? all this and bureaucracy. Funneled, and... You get funneled into this into this system where it's well, does it fit these criteria? No, I'll I'll throw you over to the other side, back to back to Val or whoever yeah. on the other side, and see if you fit those criteria. And yeah, that's the joke. Uh, she she kept getting like ditched between departments from the police department to child services and back, uh, mm-hmm. and it just adds to this uh, context of kind of like. That uh, criticizes all these adult organizations, which I think is great. Yeah, in a kids movie. Yeah, and 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 shows you again why, you know, Kevin will be home alone for a couple days. That's right. Like, there is not a good way to do this. And same like they do eventually get a cop to visit, but he he hides. Um, you know, it, it's a great sequence, and Hankin is so funny. Uh, I I really love that part. Uh, and uh, recommendations this week, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, so my recommendation, because I do want to talk about Catherine O'Hara, uh, this is sort of my backdoor shout-out, uh, adding another one in. I'm recommending After Hours. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. I actually got it from Ute. You'd given it to me and recommended it, but I don't think you had watched it yet either. I have not. Um, still not. Seen which it. was an interesting process. Um, it's, a, it's a great movie. I don't know. I know some people who are a little... They get a little burnt out on Scorsese, but it's not a gang movie, so I'd say dive into it. It's tons of fun, and it's the it's among the youngest Catherine O'Hara performances I've ever seen. I've watched a lot of SCTV. My family are big fans, but O'Hara's in this movie, and she's so good. It shows you a lot of her range. Like, if you're going to go Home Alone and After Hours, she's doing completely different things. Home Alone, she is the emotional backbone of this movie, and she gives a like a like an all-timer performance i'd say not the type of thing that you necessarily get awards for but it's something that lasts it's a, a yet another reason why home alone works and it's really cool to see her in a different role because again i'd say most people probably know her for home alone for Shit's creek maybe sctv yeah check her Just out being directed mom. by scorsese yeah check her out being directed by scorsese she's really young she's opposite opposite uh, griffin dunn um, Will Patton's in the movie. It's a really fun one. And uh, if there are any Ted Lasso fans listening, one of the episodes from this last second season was directly inspired, if not arguably ripped off, of uh, After Hours. Uh, and I think the episode's title was Coach After Hours, so they, it wasn't like they were trying to hide it. Right on. So I definitely, I definitely recommend that one. Check the show notes. We'll let you know where it is. 
Okay, and uh, my Christmas recommendation is uh, something that I was a little late to the game to see, uh, relatively, uh, and it's the 2015 film Krampus uh, by Michael Doherty. Uh, It's something Mm -hmm. I watched two years ago for Christmas, and then we watched it again as like a family last year, and it was a really funny movie to watch with Mm -hmm. my family because it's all about hating your family time at Christmas. It's kind of like the antithesis to Home Alone. Uh, yeah. In many ways, but uh, it's a film by Michael Doherty, who's uh, made some pretty interesting films so far. But the, the cast is also pretty stacked. It's got Adam Scott, Tony Collette, David Kuchner, and I think where this movie really thrives is in its uh, production design and sound design. There is some truly amazing uh, special effects going on with the sound effects. Yeah. Uh, if you have your, mm-hmm. if you have the ability to play this movie with surround sound on, or even just on a good set of headphones, highly recommend. It's a creepy Christmas watch that has a mm-hmm. lot of laughs. If you have a somewhat dark sense of humor. Yeah. So it's so much fun. There's some great like practical things in it too. Yes. All practical that effects. I really dug. There's there's some. Very neat stuff. I definitely recommend it. It was actually one of it was sort of our wild card on the vote for the Christmas movie. Yeah. In an alternate universe, we may have talked about it in this episode, but I think it got two votes. Uh, shout out to those viewers. Uh, you're a bit deranged, but we appreciate it. Yep. We'll always put a wild card on the vote. Good try. Thank you. Um, yeah. And uh, and yeah yeah I I I definitely double down on that recommendation. It's a great movie. It's a different flavor for Christmas for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, uh, so December, as we mentioned in our Green Knight episode, uh, December's got uh, three Wednesdays in it. So we do have an episode coming out in two weeks, but we're not going to start another sort of month theme. Uh, we'll do that. Uh, we'll start off fresh in January. So in two weeks, Tay and I are just going to put out a nice little short episode, in theory short, just like the Dune episode was short. Um about uh, we're we're gonna talk about some of our favorite movies of the year that we've seen so far, and we'll give you some recommendations. We're not gonna go super into detail. There will be some spoilers, but we'll point out some movies maybe you overlooked, maybe you haven't bothered with yet, or or that will come to a theater near you sometime soon. Yeah. So uh, check that out at the end of the month. It'll be just before just before New Year's, a little bit after Christmas. Uh, so we'll catch you then. Just to fit in with all your other year end wrap ups. Yeah. Well, when you're just sitting around digesting, eating leftovers, uh, we'll give you a little recap of some movies we really like this year. But uh, once again, thank you so much for listening. Check us out on Instagram. Email us at uh, sscpod at gmail.com if you got thoughts. And uh, with that, I'll say, uh, you know, happy holidays. Hope you're not home alone. <laughs> Hope you're not home alone. Merry Christmas, everybody.